you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the, world. in the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. The Chris Voss Show.com. Hey, we're coming here with our podcast. We certainly appreciate you. And you, you, that one in the back there, appreciate you too. Thanks for coming by the show and the podcast. We certainly appreciate it. Refer the show to your friends, neighbors, relatives. Tell them to subscribe. You hit that subscribe button. You get this special feeling of warmth that flows over you. It touches you deep in your soul. And the beautiful thing about the unconditional love you get from the Chris Voss Show podcast is we don't judge you. So you can have a relationship with the podcast by subscribing. You can have with almost no other. Maybe your dog, but that's probably about it. Certainly not your, probably your significant other, because you're, whatever. I don't know where that joke's going. Anyway, guys, we have, of course, the most excellent author on the show and the most amazing book on the show. So this is really going to blow you away and really get you going. This book just came out yesterday. It is hot, steaming off the presses. In fact, when our author showed up today, he had gloves on because he couldn't touch the books. They were so hot off the presses. He has written... The seminal book, A Kids on the March, 15 stories of speaking out, protesting, and fighting for justice just out yesterday. Dr. Michael G. Long, and I'll give you some rundown on him. He is the author and editor of numerous books on civil rights, LGBTQ rights, protest movements, and politics, including 42 Today, Jackie Robinson's Life and Legacy, Troublemaker for Justice, Bayard Rustin, the man behind the march in Washington. We, the resistance, documenting the history of nonviolent protest in the United States and more. Kids on the March is his first book for young readers. He has also written for the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, USA Today, ESPN's The Undefeated, and other publications. He's a popular speaker and has given talks at the CIA. You may have heard of it. The Library of Congress, you may have also heard of it, and the National Constitution Center, and the National Museum of American History, Archives, the National Archives, Fenway Park, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, among other places. He lives with his spouse, Karen, and their two sons, Jackson and Nate, in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. He loves eating dinner with his family, pretending to be a professional gardener, trying to coax bluebirds to live in his backyard. And, of course, he tells cool stories about kid protesters. He also likes holding hands, seeing sunsets, and pina coladas, and uh, dunes by a cave. Anyway, then welcome to the show, Michael. How are you? I'm doing fine, Chris. That's quite the introduction. <laughs> Let it me was. just compliment you on sounding like a mezzo-soprano as well. We, we try and give it all the energy, but there you go. Welcome to the show, my friend. Congratulations on your new book that you've got out. Give us your plugs so people can find you on the interwebs and order up this uh, wonderful book. Sure. You can find the book at Algonquin Books for Young Readers. That's the publisher of the book. Thanks to them for publishing the title. And uh, you can find me on Facebook at Michael Long. So please feel free to friend me. And you can find my profile at uh, major booksellers online, including Amazon. There you go. Order up the book just out today, Kids on the March. And, of course, you can uh, go to his Amazon page and see all of his other stuff. So out of all these books that you're writing, what motivates you to pick this one, Michael, and write it? 
Yeah. So as you notice, I've done some work, adult work on nonviolent protests in U.S. history. And when I was going through that research and looking at the historical photos, by the way, that's some of my favorite parts of research, just looking at the old photos. I would often see kids in the photos and sometimes they would be on the left bottom or the bottom right or the upper right-hand corner or the upper left-hand corner. They were always marginalized in the photos. And it got me really thinking, who are these kids? What are they doing there? What are their stories? And so that's part of the inspiration. Another part of the inspiration is that when I was a kid, I was a victim of a grave injustice. And several of us got together and we decided to go talk with adults. And we did. And they really didn't listen to us. And they really didn't do anything about what we told them. In fact, they rallied around the perpetrator in some ways. And that still stinks. And it still sits with me in a really bad way. So I've always been inclined to amplify the voices of kids who have been victims of injustice and kids who have been on the margins. What I like about this, and what's also uh, inspired me, is that these are kids who have really strained their backbone through the years and who have stood up and shouted out. And that's so important, especially for kids. Yeah, a large time, a lot of times kids, the parents dismiss kids, adults, kids, all that good stuff. This just in, adults suck. No, I'm just kidding. Kids live in a wonderment of innocence and they see everything for what it is. And as adults, we get a little tainted on that stuff. I noticed something about this book on the age group. Is there a targeted group of people you're looking to reach with this book? Yeah, I think we're shooting for kids age 10 to 14. Having said that, I think older kids would appreciate it as well and find a lot of different tactics in there. I love going back through the stories myself and becoming inspired as I read them. So give us an overview arc of the book, and then we'll start breaking it down. Is it, does it span a period of time? Is it to a specific period of time? Give us a layout of that. So the book looks at protests that kids have been involved in. Sometimes they lead the protest. Sometimes they're just a key part of the protest. And sometimes they're in the margins of the protest. But it, the book is divided into two parts, 20th century and the 21st century. It's pretty convenient. <laughs> it starts in 1903 with the March of the Mill Children in Philadelphia. And this was led by the famous Mother Jones. And these were textile kids who worked in textile factories faced awful conditions. And at the urging of Mother Jones, they decided to march from their mills in Philadelphia to President Roosevelt in Oyster Bay, New York, at his luxurious home there, pleading for work days that weren't as long, for better working conditions and so forth. And Roosevelt refused to see them. So the book starts with that story, and it goes up to the George Floyd protests of 2020 and 2021, especially a protest led by some kids in Berkeley, California. So it has about a 120-year span. And the book, in short, really tells narratives from these different protests. I don't merely lay out the facts, but I try to tell compelling stories about the various kids in their protests, why they protested, how they protested, and then whether they succeeded or failed or whether they succeeded in the short term than one in the long term. And I think you may have inferred this early on. Do you mean this is a historical book? Not only to tell these stories, educate people, share the stories, and amplify the message, as you mentioned earlier, but you, I think you implied maybe to give a manual to, to future generations that, uh, of children and kids, teenagers that want to speak out? 
Yeah. So the book is nonfiction history. It's appropriate for courses in history or for anybody interested in history, especially the history of protest. But at the back of the book, we also include some tips for kids who are hoping to protest, whether they want to be an just a regular organizer or a leader or even a follower. We include tips at the back of the book. Also, in the very stories of the book, kids can pull out the types of protests that they're interested in. So the book looks at marches, rallies, boycotts, visits with legislators, petitions, and so forth and so on. There are lots of different protests. Now, I don't cover all of the ones. There's this famous nonviolent theorist who's no longer with us. His name is Gene Sharp, and he's really the person in nonviolent protests. And he developed a list of 192 tactics for us to adopt when facing an injustice. I don't deal with all those tactics, but there are some major ones that I cover in the book. I do, a, I deal with, I do some of those tactics when the wife gets angry at me. It's nonviolent. <laughs> doesn't work doesn't work i still end up on the couch it's my sixth wife it's probably gonna have a divorce soon i'm just kidding so this is pretty interesting so what were some of the stories that really stuck out to you what were some of the share with us a couple of different stories that really were maybe moving for you i think one of the more inspiring stories for me happened in 1951 there was this young woman she was a high school student named barbara johns uh, and she was at robert moden high school in Farmville, Virginia. It was an all-black school. It was segregated from the Farmville High School, which was attended by whites. And so this is a racially segregated county, racially segregated school district. And at Barbara's school, the all-black school, there were about 400 kids, close to 500. The school itself was built for about 200, 250. So they were bursting at the seams. The school board decides, okay, We'll build some extra buildings. They put up, no kidding, tar paper shacks. And these shacks, there are pot-bellied stoves. So you can imagine oh, the dust and filth in the rooms. The tar Isn't paper that a fire shacks. hazard too? Yeah. Like, yeah. Tar, pa- tar paper and, and, and fire. fire. Yeah. And it's filthy. <laughs> and the tar paper shacks leak. And the heating stinks. So Barbara Johnson's had enough of this. Then to top it off, some of her friends are killed in an accident. Mm. And then to top that off, one day she misses the black school bus, the school bus for the black kids. And she's waiting. She's hoping to get a ride. And the beautiful white school bus goes by all the white kids. And the bus refuses to stop. Barbara has had enough. She goes to school and she talks with a trusted teacher and with her fellow students, her peers, and she decides she's going to have a strike. 1951, Farmville, Virginia. <laughs> Barbara Johns decides to have a strike of black kids. They walk out of the school. They get rid of the principal in the meantime. They send him on an errand, that, and he's clueless. They walk out of the school. They have this strike. It's absolutely amazing. Most interesting thing about the story is not only that and the courage they showed in this violent, white, racist community, but also the fact that they were willing to bend. And here's what they did, Chris. Is this story getting too long? No, I'm okay. loving it. It's the details. Here's what, the deets. Okay, here's the what deets, they did. We call them. The kids call them the deets. In the beginning, Barbara Johns was calling for a better school, which made sense to her, right? But 
she's willing to bend because the NAACP gets involved. She reached out to them, actually, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. And at this point, the head of the NAACP legal team is Thurgood Marshall. Oh, there we go. Thurgood Marshall says, yeah, we'll get involved in the case, but only if we can fight for an integrated school. So Barbara John says, hmm, this sounds a lot better to me. (laughs) So she's flexible and the kids are too, but they're not sure because they love their school. They got school pride. But they eventually are flexible enough to join this NAACP campaign and the case becomes part of the Brown versus Board of Education. Wow. Wow. On May 17th, Barbara John's and her fellow peers at Moton High School win. Wow. That is huge. Isn't it? Freaking huge. That's like history, historic, epic. Yeah, that's awesome. Wow. That's an epic story. I never even knew that was a proponent of that. That's a great story. Yeah. the worst part about it, though, is that the kids really faced a lot of blowback. Their, yeah. kid, their parents lost jobs, mm-hmm. and Barbara John's life was threatened. And the KKK put up a cross at Robert Moton High School and lit it. The blowback was amazing. And then when the case came down, Barbara John's home mysteriously burned to the ground. So oh. there was a lot of blowback in that area. Yeah. The, we recently had Tim Shriver on, a nephew of Bobby Kennedy's, one of those people that I really admired. And of course, I've always, in times where I've dealt with bullies or times where I've been down, I've always focused on that, standing up against oppression and resistance. Yeah. And that's what these kids are doing. They're standing up and maybe they don't have as much to lose as their parents, but look what look what difference they made historically over the last 70, 80 years. I'm glad you mentioned Bobby Kennedy. He actually makes an appearance in the book. Oh, does he? Yeah, so in 1968 in East Los Angeles, Chicano kids faced some really horrible situations there too. The graduation graduation rate, excuse me, was in the 30 percentile for some of these schools. It was awful. And the teachers made fun of the kids and they would say things like dirty Mexicans. And there's this one case where a student, Paulo Chrysostomo, remembers that a teacher said to her, you better pay attention because you're going to be cooking and and cleaning our our houses someday. Pay attention in this home ec class. And another teacher said that, Paula, you and your friends are going to be pregnant. I'm not quite sure why you're here. So the conditions were horrible in East Los Angeles and the kids decide to walk out. They stage this huge walkout and they demand a better education. They demand students, they demand teachers, excuse me, who are conversant in their culture, conversant in Spanish language, and their list went on. And Bobby Kennedy visited them during the height of that walkout and gave them his support. My gosh, they were over the moon seeing Bobby Kennedy, who at the time was running for president in 1968 in Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, but it's a great story. And it took them a while. But one of the best things that came out of that walkout is that UCLA started admitting a lot of Hispanic and Chicano students. And so did the rest of the California State uh, College and University system. There you go. There you go. Awesome story. Let's do that teaser thing I was telling you about pre-show. Is there a teaser in the book you want to tease that people should, uh, people like an added extra reason to pick up this book? Teaser yeah, there's, there's, there's this great case in 2016 of kids 
from Dakota, North Dakota, and they're getting together because there's the Dakota Access Pipeline that's running near their reservation, where the plan is for the construction of the pipeline to run near their reservation and under the river that is a water source for their reservation. Right, So this is part of the Dakota Access Pipeline protest that's going on in 2016. It becomes a big occupation movement. Right. So a lot of Native Americans and their allies descend on North Dakota and on the Sioux Reservation there and occupy the land. It's a beautiful story. Kids play a major role in this protest. Now, how do they do it is the question. Native American adults who have great esteem in the Native American culture, especially the elderly, oh my gosh. And so the kids are constantly looking up to the elderly and then beyond that to the ancestors for instruction and inspiration. But they get the bright idea that they can make a huge difference. They do. And they do it by going from reservation, the Sioux Reservation in North Dakota to Washington, D.C., the question is, and here's the teaser, how do they get there? Oh, and what kind of difference do they make? I'll tell you this, it has to do with the Native American tradition of sending messages from one tribe to another. Mm. Kids Technology. pick up that tradition mm. and carry it on. So it's it's a really like the, beautiful story. So it's probably the iPhone I, text messages, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's how the kids roll these days. So pick up the book, order it up on Amazon or your local bookstore because you'd want to get on some of these teasers. You want to get in and find out what that's about. I think that's a really cool story. I'm really interested. Now. I was interested before, but now I love teasers. I love teasers because you're like, I got to get the rest of you. It's kind of like drama. When I call some of my friends and I go, hey, I got some drama. They're like, what do you got? Yeah. And uh, then you give them a teaser in there and, I, and then you go, oh, I'll call you later. I'll give you the whole story. And they're like, no. So I always love teasers when we do that during the show. I like to say, uh, this is off the record. <laughs> there you go. It's off the record. But if you buy the book, you get it on the record. The the biggest, the interesting thing about children is they have that, that innocence. They have that outlook on life where they see things as they really are. As adults, we tend to get uh, some of the different aspects of money. And I don't want to shake the boat because I might lose my job or my house. And kids are like, I don't care. I'll do what I want. And, but I, was there an aspect of bravery that you looked? Sure. There's this great story from 1963. I'm going to tie this together with your earlier comments about adults being busy and so forth and having outside obligations and kids not having them as much. 1963, Dr. King and his colleagues were in Birmingham, Alabama for Project C. It's called Project Confrontation. And they were trying to desegregate the city of Birmingham, Alabama. And Dr. King went to jail, wrote the letter from Birmingham jail, and the movement was starting to get flat. And they were having trouble getting adults for the movement. And so some of King's colleagues, James Bevel especially, said, why don't we think about getting some kids together? Mm. And this was controversial because Birmingham was a dangerous place. And Dr. King hesitated. But Bevel's point was that kids don't have the obligations that adults have. They don't have the type of responsibilities that pull them in so many different directions as adults have. And they're eager about what we've been doing. We know that. And so Dr. King agreed. And the kids came out in full force. 
And on the first day they joined the protests, over 900 of them went to jail. Oh, wow. Second day to jail? To jail. On the second day, over 1,000 went to jail. It gets worse. The safety, the police safety commissioner there was a guy named Bull Connor. And he looked as if he, as his name sounds, <laughs> a big white bullish guy. Yep. And the kids were protesting at a nearby public park. And Bull Connor decides that he's going to stick some snarling German shepherds on these kids. And not only does he do that through his police force, but he instructs the firefighters to turn supercharged hoses on these kids as well. It's incredible. The images of dogs lunging at kids' throats and their midsections, and the images of kids being blown off their feet, being swept off their feet, fired off their feet by these supercharged hoses go around the world. Yeah. And Kennedy finally starts to freak out. Finally. And on June 11th, 1963, not long after that protest, he goes on television and asks for new civil rights legislation. And when he does so, he commends the bravery of those who are involved in the civil rights movement in Birmingham. But what I want to emphasize is not only that, but also the bravery of these kids to stand there and to deal with these dogs and the fire hoses. And you know what? After that happened, hundreds more came out again. And the police just got them together took them to jail, took them to detention centers. They even took them to the local fairgrounds and threw them in the pig pens. Oh, Jesus. The kids kept coming out. <laughs> Amazing story. God bless those kids. Because that's the thing, man, as a mass, and they're fighting for their future. And yeah, those, it, it's always sad to me as we have historians on like yourself and we talk about the history of social injustice in this country and stuff. We talk about how, uh, a lot of these things took in, it, it's sad to me that it takes something this tragic, this horrific, this ugly marker on the time of history, the suffrage, the death of people that we have to go through seminal moments where we go, oh yeah, what we're doing there is bad. Yeah, we should stop that. And, uh, but those pictures were the, were almost a linchpin for creating civil rights legislation and the world was aghast and they saw those pictures and went, what the hell? And they were pictures of kids. I want to run, if I may, with your with a comment you just made. And in 2018, on February 14th, Valentine's Day, 2018, uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, faced a horrific shooting, as, as we all know. And in response to that, the kids in that school really bound together. And they realized that the adults, we adults, had failed them. And they're right about that. And so they got together and they decided eventually to hold not only local events like a candlelight vigil and a local protest rally, but they decided to take their disappointment with adults to the adults in Washington, D.C. and held this huge March for Our Lives rally. It was was history making in terms of the leadership of young kids and then the impact and the massive amounts of people who turned out, not only in Washington, D.C., but across the world as well. And nothing happened in Washington, D.C. in response to that. Now, what happened 
with the kids after that march is that they stayed together and they continued to fight for legislation in various states. And that march and that movement led to more legislative reform in terms of gun control legislation than anything else, which is awesome, right? Now, here we are, what, one or two days after this another horrific shooting in Boulder, Colorado, where the shooter used a gun, the type of which was targeted by the kids in the March for Our Lives, and that is a automatic rifle. The kids in Parkland thought that a rifle like that took out way too many, way too fast, and that if you banned that, there wouldn't have been the awful destruction that they had faced on February 14th, Valentine's Day in 2018. And here we are. There you go. The adults continue to fail those kids, the kids from Newton, right, the Newtown, the kids from uh, Columbine and so many others. Yeah. And you have the kids from the Parkland School on your cover of your book. It was extraordinary because we'd gone through just, it was a weekly, almost daily thing there for a while of school shootings. And suddenly the Parkland shooting happens and it's horrific. And the kids just rise up. And it was powerful. It was inspiring. It was it was like, we've had enough. And they were really good at organizing these kids. I wonder how much of a factor, if it's even traceable, that they had to, the filing of bankruptcy, put shining a light more on the NRA, what they were up to, where their funding resources were, and maybe possibly bringing them down with the bankruptcy. I, mean, I don't know if there's a direct line there, but they yeah, definitely must have had something. That's a great point, Chris. And I do think there's a direct line there. But you're right. It's tough to line up the evidence to make that case. But I imagine a lot of of adults. I know a lot of people who are NRA fans that went, yeah, it's probably, they probably called it. It's probably, and we probably need to really start looking at it. I love guns and I support guns, but maybe it's really time to take another look at it. And some people pulled funding from the NRA and and took a look at it but the bravery of these kids is astounding in how they uh stand up and how they look they usually have nothing to lose but i think a lot of times probably the stories in your book of a lot of these children they're fighting for their future they recognize that even though they're children that they're going to have to move into this world live in it try and raise a family earn money do jobs and stuff and they realize they don't want to this isn't a world they want to join so they better do something about it is that a good analogy yeah, I'm going to go back to this 1903 March textile kids that I mentioned at the front of the program. And the interesting thing about that march is that the kids loved being on the march because then they weren't in the mill. So it was a different life for them, a life that they never experienced. They were delighted to be on the march, which is mind-blowing. Marches from Philadelphia to Oyster Bay, New York, pretty rigorous. But there they are, the walking along the way. And they did face quite a few bad conditions along the way, but they loved being on the march. Mm-hmm. They didn't, they lost by being on that march was an awful day in the middle. Yeah. They knew that if they got to the president, there would be a chance that they wouldn't have to go back to those awful conditions. That didn't happen. And they did go back to those awful conditions. But the march took place in Philadelphia and Commonwealth of Pennsylvania right now. And a couple of years after that march, the legislature here in Pennsylvania did make some reform in terms of child labor. And actually, I think they said the kids couldn't start to work until they were 16 at that point. I might be mm. a, a bit wrong about that. But by doing that, those kids made it possible for their friends and for their own family members 
to delay going to the mill by a couple of years. And that would have made a world of difference in terms of their education and in their health. Yeah, a lot of these lay the foundation for that or the guideposts for that. And then you have to wait for, you know, government to catch up and do the right thing and legislation to pass through bodies. And sometimes it takes a while for people's minds to change, like what we dealt with in in the civil rights era and stuff. And sometimes it, it has to take these horrific images, Parkland, of course, and all the other different things that we've seen. Every time we see one of these these atrocities on, on, on television where people are slaughtered and, and for us to wake up and then slowly do things. It, it's sad that it's sad that it takes so long to take the wheels of justice sometimes to grind. But when they do grind, they grind exceedingly fine, as they like to say. Anything we haven't talked about in the book or any stories that you want to give out before we go? I just want to highlight that kids sometimes have a purity of cause. And you mentioned or alluded to this early on. And often they're at the vanguard of social movements pointing the way. And so you're right, we do, we adults do get beaten down, we're quick to compromise sometimes, we become pessimistic about the ability to change the world. But one of the good things about kids is that they're not beaten down like that yet. And so they do have a purity of cause and often bring to movements an energy and enthusiasm that adults sometimes Lack. Now, I do want to emphasize that these kids are often realistic, too. I think the Parkland kids, for example, were realistic about facing uh, a Republican Congress and a Republican president at the time, all of whom were opposed to uh, reasonable gun reform legislation. Not all of whom, but many of them. And so the kids, bring, kids are realistic as well, but they bring purity of cause and energy and enthusiasm and a willingness which is just beautiful. It's inspirational, but it's also a model for us adults who are beaten down so much to look to them sometimes for the way to go. Yeah, as adults, we suck sometimes. We're, we're sold out for the money. We're worrying about the wife and car and kids and all that sort of stuff, or husband. And we're a bit, we're a bit, we have, we have, we're marginalized on our, on our biases and influences because, you know, sometimes you're just like, well, I have to do something, but somebody's got to pay the bills around here. And, and of course, we're, we're jaded in our old age. We're just like, I want to watch TV, catch what's on Netflix and work and stuff. And so it's great that kids have this perspective of vision and stuff. There was one story that we missed that I was curious about. I don't know if you want to touch on it or we can we can make it a teaser, but there's a great story in the book about the Vietnam War and stuff that's in here. Yeah. Before you get to that, Chris, I want to follow up on your point and sure. say that one of the things about the uh, climate change movement, spearheaded by Greta Thunberg. Uh, oh, yes. Duh. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. That one. Yeah. She had purity of focus. And one of the interesting things about Thunberg is that she, because of her, I think it was the emotional condition She's on a spectrum, I think, for autism. On a spectrum for autism. She was unable to compartmentalize that problem. Yeah. And most adults, like you and me, we can compartmentalize a problem. We can look at the possibility of nuclear war and then sit down with a bag of chips and watch sports. (laughs) (laughs) Thunberg didn't have that ability, nor did she have that willingness to do. And she became stereoscopically focused on protesting climate injustice. That 
is the perfect example of the purity of focus that some kids bring to protest movements. Here, there's a great story about the Vietnam War in the book. It's about Mary Beth Tinker and her brother John and their friends. In 1965, the war is really beginning to rage. And this is early on in terms of protest movements for the Vietnam War. And Mary Beth Tinker is in school. Her brother's a little older than she is. And they decide with their friends that they're going to wear black armbands uh, to school to protest. And Mary Beth Tinker is the first who does. And when she gets to school, she's nervous and she's concerned and her friends are nervous for her. And one of her good friends says that she probably shouldn't be wearing it. And Mary Beth Tinker says, but everybody's dying in the war. And it's so sad. She's sad about uh, all these deaths. So she continues to wear this protest. Eventually she's suspended from school and so is her brother and so are some friends for refusing to take off the armband or or for having worn it and so they continue uh, their fight they continue it through the courts and eventually this particular case ends up as the famous Tinker case oh, wow. in Tinker v. Des Moines and and Supreme Court and the Supreme Court decides that Schools, public schools, do not have an authoritarian right over kids still have the right to free speech in public schools. Now, there are some conditions on that, right? And so they can't be disruptive of school discipline. And so that's a serious condition, no doubt. But because of Mary Beth Tinker and John Tinker and the witness of their friends, just by wearing black armbands to school, millions of kids have the right to free speech in public schools today with conditions. That's awesome. That's awesome. What a powerful thing. I, I should I should get some kids one of these days. I just have two dogs. I'm fighting with one right now. But no, it's just extraordinary. And doing a callback to the Greta story, the the really powerful thing about her is when she that look she gave Donald Trump when he walked by, and then the speech she gave, the shaming she did that was so beautiful, where she's you adults, and it was awesome. Withering. She yeah. is weathering. Yeah. Even I was like, yeah, oh shit, I'm sorry. We're screwing up. Yeah, you're right. She just called it. And and what was so beautiful about her was just that succinctness, like you say, that laser focus and that ability to just, I don't think there was an, there shouldn't have been an adult. If you had a soul or a, lack, a bit of empathy, just hearing her speak about it and what we were doing as adults. And you're just like, yeah, I feel a bit of shame and we're doing bad. We need to do better. And you're looking at her and you're going, this is her future. This is why this is important. And and she inspires so many other people because her story, she's just started out with that little a poster at her school. And there's the pictures of her just sitting there alone, holding vigil. And then suddenly it becomes this worldwide movement. And it's, it's a really- It was really a one-person strike that she held. Uh, She did hold this sign outside the Swedish parliament for a long time before people would approach her and talk with her about it. And then it just snowballed. That shows you the power as well that one kid can have over the world. It's amazing that she's moved the world so much. She's done it with hundreds of thousands of other kids by this point. But, and adults as well. But wow, the power of that one kid sitting down outside the Swedish parliament with a handmade sign is just amazing to me. And this is the inspiring part of your book. It's targeted towards kids that are within this age group and giving them uh, kind of a blueprint for maybe how they want to take and design their future protest or invoke change in our world. 
Yeah. One of the key common themes throughout the book is about power. And these kids realize, unlike so many other kids, I think, and it's part of the purpose of the book, that they have power. And I think sometimes many of us adults who are so beaten down don't feel as if we have power either. But they have a clear sense that in those institutions and schools and communities and families where there's a pyramid structure of power, that if they begin to pull out of that, topple, topple, right? They realize sometimes that they're they're at the bottom in school and the principal's at the top and then there are teachers and teacher's assistants and so forth. But they realize that if they begin to step out of that pyramid, boom. And so these kids have the virtue of being able to see and understand that they have power. And that's really part of what the book is about as well, to help kids realize that you have power, like Greta, you have power like Barbara Johns in 1951 in Virginia. You have power like those kids who attended the 1963 March on Washington. You have power to change the world. There you go, guys. And we'll go out with that. That's the power to change the world. Grab the book. Give us your plugs one more time, Michael, and tell us where people can order up the book. Sure. The book is Kids on the March, 15 stories of protesting, of speaking out, protesting, and fighting for justice. It's published by Algonquin Books, so you can go to their site. You can also go to Amazon. You can also go to all indie uh, sites as well, indie books as well, especially. And there you'll be able to find my profile. You can also find me on Facebook under Michael Long. Send me a friend request, and then we'll get in touch. There you go. And do you also want to just give a shout-out real quick or a plug to your uh, Jackie Robinson book? Sure, I do have a new, Thank you, Chris. I do have we a new just book. published it on February 9th this year, so figure ja- Jackie Robinson Day is just around the corner, everybody. April 15th. There you it's go. Always Jackie Robinson Day. I have a new book out called 42 Today. Jackie Robinson and his legacy as a forward by Ken Burns and Sarah Burns and David McMahon, and then afterward by ESPN, the ESPN's Kevin Morita. It's a it's a wonderful look at Robinson's legacy. I want to give a shout out, though, to Chris Foss for having me on this great podcast. <laughs> He's here somewhere. He's here somewhere. <laughs> and we would love to have you back, not to put you on the spot, but we'd love to have you back just to spend an hour with us on the Jackie Robinson book as well. So I'd love to do Very that. awesome there. So, guys, be sure to pick it up. Go to the uh, websites, uh, whether it's a local bookstore or Amazon. Do we get your .com where people can find you on the interwebs and learn more about you? I don't have a .com, but you can find me on profile on Amazon and on Facebook. There you go. Thank you very much, Michael, for spending some time with us and sharing this wonderful information and, and being here today. Chris, I had a great time. Thanks for your great questions. And, and congratulations on both your new books that you've Thank you. put out so far. And you have a lot of other books, too. People should check out on Amazon as well. Let's protest uh, and play ball. Yes, I love protests, social justice, and people who stand up against oppression and in the greatest walls of resistance. And sometimes those tiny, as Bobby Kennedy used to say, those tiny ripples of hope send forth a current that can overflow all those different things. And sometimes we think what we do doesn't matter in the world, but it does. And so that difference that each one of us, when we stand up for an ideal, can help send forth. I just paraphrase the old Bobby Kennedy ripple of hope speech there. Check it out, guys. You'll definitely want to go up to your local Amazon, your local Amazon, your local bookseller or Amazon, Kids on the March, 15 Stories of Speaking Out, Protesting, and Fighting for Justice by Dr. Michael Long. Thanks so much for tuning in. Be sure you go to youtube.com for just Chris Foss to see the video version of this. See us on the Clubhouse app. See us 
on goodreads.com fortunes chris voss and all the groups we have on facebook linkedin and uh instagram uh wear your mask stay safe and we'll see you guys next time